Well, I mentioned this, you've probably turned the corner into Christmas time. I'm sure all of us have. If, you, uh, if you've been to Hobby Lobby since about spring break, they turn that corner a little faster than, than the rest of us do. But it's, it's here, it's December the 3rd. And you know, I, agree, I don't know if you're ready for Christmas or if there is such a thing. I agree with Andy Williams, myself. I believe this is the most wonderful time of the year. I've always felt that way about Christmas time. There's lights, there's music, the baked goods. I mean, baked goods every day this time of year. And people, you know, people just generally, people tend to be more generous this time of year. People are more uh, prone to talk about peace and hope and joy because it's Christmas time. Uh, and that's part of the reason I love it. But there's, the truth is, not to be a downer, but the truth is, uh, this season is kind of an illusion for a lot of us. I mean, the fact is that the world's problems don't magically cease to exist just because it's Christmas time. Thanks, Randy. That could be my... Is that our child? It's possible. Ah, close the door. We'll be, you know, he'll be fine. Uh, the, the, the world's problems don't just stop... Uh, existing because it's December, all right? I'd like to think that they do. I'd like to cushion myself or tune them out. Um, but the reality is the world keeps spinning and the world is full of problems. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I don't know that this is necessarily true, but it feels true that at least in our own nation, we're more divided, more uh, backward perhaps now than we've ever been. It feels that way, at least the media portrays it that way. If you dare to turn the news on, you're just not going to hear a whole lot of peace and hope and joy even this time of year. It's just the world that we live in. And, and part of the significance of Advent is, is made for that reality. Okay, when, when we use the word Advent, that's a word that means the coming or the arrival of Jesus. And Advent is not merely about the birth of Christ that we celebrate at Christmas, but it also refers to our anticipation for his return. Advent is a waiting time. We waited for the birth of Christ, right? But for us, that's now a remembrance, a celebration. But as Christians, Advent also means that we await his return when he will bring to the earth peace and righteousness forevermore. And so Advent means for us, we live in the in-between, and that's a good way to think about it. We live in the in-between. We live in between the coming of Christ at Christmas and the return of Christ is coming again. And there's a certain way we're supposed to live in the in-between. And that's what Ephesians 6 is all about. We have been studying through Ephesians more or less since about June. And we're going to close the book on Ephesians today. We're going to get it done before the end of the year. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us here at the end of this book exactly what's wrong with the world. And he's going to give it to us from a perspective that maybe we don't typically consider, but he's going to tell us what's wrong, the problem, the big problem. But then he also, and really more importantly, he's going to tell us how we as Christians are meant to function in the midst of it. How are we supposed to live in the midst of the world's problems? Now, a few weeks ago, I said this, that the Christian faith is not for the faint of heart. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that when I come to God, I'm not coming to God and I'm not becoming his pet. I'm not entering into an agreement where if I will just love God and go to church, that God will coddle me and he will make my life easy and comfortable. That's not what the Christian faith is. We are, at the very root of our existence, we are followers of Jesus. 
And if you read through the Gospels, Jesus did not have an easy life. He didn't seek an easy life. He went as a light into dark places, and that's what it is to be a Christian. And so we see this, what Randy read for us, Ephesians 6, Paul gives us the language of the battlefield here. He gives us the language of war. And so we make no mistake as we enter into uh, this Advent season, we are living in the in-between. No matter how uh, sweet I feel about the season, the world uh, has not changed magically because it's Christmas time. Uh, the world, if anything, has only gotten worse, and we are called as lights to engage that darkness. Paul tells us right here how to do that. So he's going to tell us, again, here's the problem, and here's what Christians do now in the midst of it, and that's where we start in verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul says, finally. So he's, he's, he's rounding the corner now to the end of the letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We'll stop right there to say that Paul is giving us a clear command. We see it. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But it's clear if, you, if we read this, this is not a typical command. Paul's not telling us to actively do something. He's, he's telling us to take on a certain kind of posture. And there's something going on in this scripture that's bigger than us. And that becomes clear too as we look at it. The command itself, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The focal point is not you and me here. The focal point is God, right? Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God. God is the focal point. The emphasis is on him. And then Paul tells us why. Why is the emphasis on God in this case and not on us? Because there's a battle at hand. And Paul tells us what it is that we, because of God's strength, might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Paul gets real serious here, doesn't he? I mean, he's serious all throughout, but when you invoke the devil, okay, our ears tend to perk up. Now, a lot of people, even Christians, sadly, view the devil as, as kind of a big joke. And, and, and we, we, that's a cultural reality that we kind of cartoon the devil into this little red figure who dances around with a pitchfork uh, or a demon who's kind of hiding in the bushes somewhere ready to jump out at us and scare us. But you notice when Paul talks about Satan here, he does not give any room for that kind of, um, kind of cartoonishness. Look at what Paul says in verse 12 again. There's a cosmic reality here when he, mentioned, when he invokes the devil's name, verse 12. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What I take from that is this, that there is a personal, powerful, supernatural intelligence at work in the world. He's called the devil. And his desire is to consume the world in enmity against God. The, the desire of Satan is to destroy the works of God and the children of God. That's his ultimate Desire And our ultimate struggle, Paul says, our wrestling is not with each other, which is what we're prone to think. 
Paul says our ultimate struggle, our wrestling, is with him. And, and see, the, 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 I think part of the problem that we encounter, and this is, take the world's problems, and there are many. I mean, we, where do we even begin? But when we talk about the world's problems, we're always trying to solve those problems with merely human answers, aren't we? There's got, there's, if it's a human problem, in our, in our view, then there's got to be a human answer to it. But what I think the Scripture is telling us here is that when we do that, we're really aiming at the wrong target. We're not aiming at the ultimate target as to what's really wrong and what's driving our problems. Uh, you'll notice this whenever we try to address a problem in our own culture, we always try to address it structurally. We need to change policies. We need to change who's in charge in Washington. We need to change the budget. We need to change the education system, right? And that's all well and good. And there's, I know there's a place for those things, of course. But we're not going deep enough. We're not going deeply enough if we try to simply solve human problems with structural solutions, because it doesn't work that way, what we end up doing is we neglect the deeper reality, what Paul tries to tell us, that there are spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a demonic power that influences and drives the world's deepest problems. And not just the world's problems out there, but my problems, my sins, my temptations, my desires that are in rebellion, against God. And because most people typically refuse to acknowledge what Paul is saying right here, what we end up trying to do, we just end up trying to fix each other, flesh and blood. We're doing what Paul warns us against. He says, listen, your battle is not ultimately against flesh and blood, not against one another. It's with something much greater, much more powerful, much more sinister. And if we simply just try to fix one another, we never actually get to the root of the problem. And more than that, we can't ever even agree what's right in the first place. So we can't fix each other at all. I'm like, if we could even agree on a right standard, we might have a fighting chance, but we can't even do that. And so Paul's saying, if we simply look only horizontally here at one another and blame each other for our problems and fix each other or try to, Paul says we've missed the real target because there's a deeper and more sinister reality going on. And that's why Paul is telling us there's only one power great enough to overcome, to overwhelm, to defeat this power. If there are, if there are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, there's only one who's greater, who's great enough to solve this problem. And that's why Paul tells us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the only hope we have. And so before we move on, I, you know, I think there's the tendency, at least in, the, in, in, my, in what, the culture that I'm kind of familiar with, church culture, our tendency is when we look at what Paul's saying here concerning spiritual warfare, uh, we tend to either underestimate this or overestimate this. Um, people tend to either not give much credit to Satan at all or overabound in concern for Satan and, and an assumption of his schemes. And so here's what I, you know, when Paul says, uh, stand firm in the Lord and against the devil's schemes, what he's saying is, uh, this is a real battle that I can't discount either because I think it's silly or because I think it's too scary. Okay. If I think of the devil as silly, of course, then I'll underestimate the reality of his presence. If I think he's too scary, then I'll, I'll start to imagine him behind every corner, right? And so I, I, the truth is, for me, I tend to underestimate. That's, I, that's been typically my posture. I tend to underestimate the, uh, the reality that Paul is 
unfolding for us here. And, uh, and I've got to come correct. And I'm, I'm grateful for people who've helped me to see more clearly on this. But, you know, just open your Bible. Some of y'all, some of y'all think like me. You kind of underestimate Satan's presence and his power. Uh, read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and just consider how often, how consistently, Jesus himself dealt with the demonic all the time. And Jesus had no issue in terms of, is this real? Jesus didn't think it was silly. Jesus didn't run and hide in the corner. He engaged eye to eye, face to face with demonic reality. He considered that it was real. And I'm not going to argue with Jesus on that. He just, he faced it, right? Um, and so if I underestimate it, I need, to, I need to come to Ephesians 6 and allow the Bible to correct me, to see this as, uh, as real and present in the, in the everyday stuff of life. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says, be on your guard for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Right? Paul sees no issue with the supernatural reality of evil. Peter saw no issue with it. Jesus saw no issue with it. They addressed it directly, and we should too. We can't, uh, we, we, it's to our own harm if we underestimate this. Now, it's also to our harm if we overestimate. That is to say, if I think that everything is demonic, if everything I see, if every person I encounter, uh, if, there, you know, if I really have this sense of there is a demon hiding behind every bush waiting to jump out, um, or if you know, every time a, a political person you know, rises to power, he's the Antichrist, I know it this time. Right? We, if, if we overestimate that reality, we can cause ourselves harm too because we're forgetting something in that case. Something that Jesus said after he rose from the grave in Matthew 28, part of the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. So the mnemonic reality is here. It's real, right? If we, if we are Bible believers, then we can't argue with it. Um, but it's not dominant. The devil is not in control. No matter, how, no matter how bad things seem to get, the devil is not in control. Jesus has authority over him, and God has victory over his schemes. And that's why we're told to put on the full armor of God. However this works in, in, in the mysteries of the cosmos, Satan has, at the same time, he has been defeated, and yet he's still kicking. He has not conceded defeat, and he is still actively at work, but he is not over God or even equal with God. He is under. He is subordinate. And so in the midst of this activity of Satan, we're told to put on the full armor of God. Now, this is a famous part of the scripture. Turn your attention to verse 13 here. This, where, where a lot of us, uh, you know, we, we learned this at VBS. If you've got kids uh, across the way over here, they're, they're doing the coloring sheets with the belt and the shield and everything right now. Um, but again, we can almost kind of make this cartoonish. We can kind of like, you know, uh, like it's a nice list of things to say. What Paul's going to tell us here is that there's a very real battle, right? We've already seen that. And therefore, there's very real response that we've got to uh, take up if we're going to battle in the right way. And so look again at verse 13. Paul says, therefore, or in light of this spiritual war, he says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet 
with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith which you, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Um, before we get into the particulars here, uh, you, you notice this maybe th- three times in this passage. Paul has commanded us to stand firm. Three different times he says, stand firm and resist. Uh, he gives us the language of battle, the language of war, but at no point does Paul command us to attack. And I think there's some significance to that. He simply commands us to stand firm, stand our ground, stand with confidence and boldness. Because, and here's why I think that's true, because the decisive attack has already taken place. God, the only power, right, uh, strong enough to defeat Satan, we can't do that in our strength. And so God has levied the attack upon Satan through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we talk about Uh, What it means to stand firm, we stand firm, we position ourselves in something that God has already done and that God is actively doing on our behalf. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, there's a great story of the people of Judah, God's people, who were uh, completely surrounded, overwhelmed. Uh, They had no hope against their enemies, and so Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, prayed to God for deliverance, and God, through a prophet, spoke to the people of Judah and said, I want you to gear up for battle. I want you to go out to battle and take your position on the battlefield. Stand firm, God says, but then I want you to watch. You will see how the Lord will deliver you, how the Lord will grant you salvation. You won't have to raise your sword at all. And as the story goes in 2 Chronicles, they went out, they took their position, they stood firm as God commanded, And then their enemies proceeded to destroy one another. In their confusion, they fought one another, and and Judah was victorious without raising a sword. And there's a sense in which that's the case for us, that we're called to bear up the armor of God and to take our stand, but the victory is not a coin flip depending on how you and I perform in this case. The victory has already been assured for us because Jesus Christ has died and has risen again. That's why in 1 John 3 it says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came for this purpose, to destroy the works of Satan. And so listen, it's not our job, it's not my job and yours to defeat the devil. And praise God that we don't have to. Okay, That's not up to us. Our job, our command in this text is to simply stand firmly in what Christ has done for us and with what he's actively doing on our behalf, right? And so when we talk about the armor of God, uh, I view this as, as having almost in a sense a double meaning here. And I think it's right to say that in one sense, there's an active command, what Paul's calling us to do, but then also kind of a passive command. And I'll explain what I mean. When we talk about the activity that Paul's commanding of us here, you and I have a daily responsibility to pursue God, to strengthen ourselves in the Lord so that we can fight against the schemes of the devil. Okay, you see that? Look in verse 14, starting in there. All of us, we walk through these, all of us need to deepen in God's truth, the belt of truth in order to combat the enemy's lies, right? You have to know the truth if you're going to combat lies. 
We're called to grow in righteousness. And that righteousness, that's a moral character. That's a moral purity that shows proof of the fact that God is at work in our hearts. That's not only our positional righteousness, but that's a way of life, a righteousness that shows forth that God is active within us. He's changing my character. And then our feet carry the gospel wherever we go. We actively are called now to be evangelists, to carry the good news of Jesus. And then in verse 16, we grow strong in faith, and that faith functions like a shield that thwarts the enemy's attack. We grow strong in faith. That was what was said of Abraham in Romans 4. And then we deepen in our confidence of our salvation. It's like a helmet that crowns our head. That we, the, the more confident we are in walking with God of our salvation, it functions to protect our minds. And then we take up the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. Um, a Christian should study her Bible, study his Bible diligently so that God's word becomes an offensive weapon. It's much is made of the fact that the sword is the only offensive weapon of all the armor that we're called to take up. And it's the word of God, that we are so richly uh, dwelling in God's word that we can fight off any attack uh, against us, that we can fight off temptation to sin as well as the evil that surrounds us in the world. Okay, there's an active nature to this command, that we're so committed to growth and strength in these areas that to be a Christian is not a person who just lies down and cowers in the face of darkness. We don't run away when things get difficult. We bear up under God's strength and we stand firm, right? But I think there's a, there's a meaning to this armor that uh, for a long time I never saw it, and, and, but I think it's very powerful for us to understand. Because remember, the battle ultimately is not up to us to win, as if God is in heaven hoping that we're going to pull through. The decisive attack has already come through for us. And so think about it from this perspective. If God is the true source of our strength, if it's the armor of God, right, as the one who provides it, and the focal point for us is Jesus Christ, then think about the armor of God from that perspective. Walk again with me through it here. Verse 14, we put on the belt of truth. Paul says. Because John chapter 14, Jesus said, I am the truth. Truth is not an abstraction somewhere out there. It's a person, and the person is Jesus. We put on the breastplate of righteousness because Philippians 3 tells us that Jesus is our righteousness, and we are saved by his works, not by ours. We're told then to, uh, to walk upon the gospel of peace because in Romans 5, it says that we have been justified by faith and we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our peace with God. We take up the shield of faith because Ephesians 2 says that Jesus is the object of our faith. Our faith is in him. We wear the helmet of salvation because Acts chapter 4 says there is salvation in no other name. Under no other name can men be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is in Christ. And then we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, because John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus himself is the eternal and divine Word of God. And so what we have here, this is not, you know, it might be easy for us to think of the armor of God the way we would in VBS, where you just take felt, a little belt, and you put it on a little character, and you put the shield, you know, and that's, that's fun and helpful. But what Paul is calling us to do here, he's not just saying, you know, be a better Christian, try harder, be better. 
No, he's saying you've got to pin all of your hopes upon Jesus Christ, right? Your diligence in following Christ is your active responsibility, but you're only successful and you're only victorious in this grand and cosmic battle to the degree that you pin your hopes on him and not on yourself. Right? Jesus is not here to assist you. He's not here to give you a little help in the, in the form of some armor for the battle. The decisive victory has been won, and now we're called to live it out. Right? That's what the armor is for. Uh, when I was, oh, 10 years old, I was on a little uh, YMCA football team. I grew up in the Houston area in Texas, and we were the Oilers. Anybody remember the Houston Oilers? Uh, they, they, are, they moved to Nashville, became the Tennessee Titans, and then the, now it's the Houston Texans that started. The Houston Oilers were awesome back in the early 90s. Warren Moon was their quarterback. So in 1992, give or take, I was on the, I was on the Oilers, powder blue and white. And we had a little 10-year-old kid on our team named Byron. I can't remember Byron's last name. But he was out of this world incredible. Still to this day, I've never seen a 10-year-old athlete like Byron, okay? And I'm telling you the truth, we did not attempt a pass the entire season because we didn't need to. All we did was turn and hand the ball to Byron and just watch him go. And I, you're laughing about it. I'm not kidding. It, I, I don't remember him being tackled once. I mean, I really have no recollection of that. He would take the ball and he was unstoppable. And we rode Byron's coattails to victory. We went undefeated. Nobody even touched us. We won the Little League 10-year-old championship. And what's funny is I look back on that. I took full credit for that, by the way, as a little 10-year-old. Um, we all got to wear the uniform. We all got, at the end of the season, we went to CC's, and we all got to hold the little championship trophy together. Okay, it was great. Um, Mr. Gaddies, my mistake. It was Mr. Gaddies. Uh, but come on. I mean, every parent in the stands, every, every parent on the opposing team, helpless as they were watching Byron just destroy their little, you know, their little team, they knew the truth, that you take him away, we probably don't win a single game that year, all right? We existed, and we succeeded because of one person. And you kind of you hear where I'm going with this analogy. It's not a perfect analogy, but here's the truth. We're, we're, we get to wear the uniform, all right? We are in Christ. We are on his team, and we are successful, we are victorious by virtue of him, all right? We don't contribute anything to this equation that God needs from us. God has already done it in Christ. And so what we owe in this battle, we owe it to our victor, to our champion, and that's to Jesus. And so Paul, listen, Paul's not writing Ephesians 6 to scare us. I mean, it can be scary to think about it when he tells us what the world really is and how the world functions under the inspiration of the devil. But it's not meant to scare us. It's not meant to send us into a corner. He's calling us, he's spurring us on. Paul's actually, I think, writing to encourage us here because there is a real battle at hand, but it's not a battle that God is capable of losing. We're on the side of somebody who can't be stopped. Jesus can't be brought down. He can't be contained. He's given us Victory, and now our armor is to walk in it, to stand in it. Satan is still active. He's still kicking. He has not conceded defeat. Right? It's only a matter of time for him. And so we, we live in that reality. He's coming. Um, but we can't be defeated because of Christ, if we are in Christ. 1 John 5, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now think about that. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Not our strength, not our wisdom, not our diligence and devotion, our faith. Faith is a posture of weakness and dependence on someone else. And that is our victory. Isn't that awesome? And then John says, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Not the powerful who by virtue of their power overcome. Those who simply trust in Christ are overcomer. That's why Jesus in John 16, he said, in this world you have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Our faith is in him. So we are not, I said this a minute ago, let me repeat it. We are not Christians because we do our best day by day. And when we find ourselves in a bind, in comes Jesus to assist us. In comes Jesus to kind of nudge us along in the right direction, help us out, and then send us on our way. Sometimes we treat it like that. I just do my best today. And when I get into a place of need, maybe God will come and help me out. That's not the Christian life. That's not the basis of our faith. The Christian life is a life that's built entirely around Jesus Christ. Where we get credit for what he's done. I got credit for Byron's athleticism and success because I was on his team. And in some, in some sense, that's true of us. That now, because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, we get credit for that. And so why would we want to build our lives on anything else? Why would I want to build my life on my own strength and, and, uh, you know, and intuitions and my, my understanding and perceptions of what's best for me and hope that Jesus will kind of assist me along the way when, when the scripture has so clearly told me who he is and what he's done for me, why wouldn't I want to build everything around him? See, that's the difference. All our strength, all our hope, all our victory in this life is on account of Christ. And I think that's ultimately the point here is the particulars of the armor, you know, are, are important. But it's, it's uh, being strong in the Lord and the strength of his might because it's the armor that he provides us in Christ. And ultimately, that's our victory. And so how do we apply something like this? Randy read this. We, we sometimes we, we divorce these, what we just read from what we're about to read. And that's unfortunate because I think Paul's giving us in verse 18 the application here. He's going to tell us now what to do. How do we make this armor of God our everyday reality? He says, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. I'll just confess, sadly, um, I don't typically look at prayer as application. I know we're supposed to pray. I know prayer is important. But I want, I want, tell me what to do. I mean, tell me what to do, right? I'll pray, but tell me what to do. And, and part of what I love about this, the end of Ephesians 6 here is Paul, I think, is telling us what to do. And it's not to go out and, and you know, try to manipulate our circumstances. It's not to go out and, and rely on our own strength. We take, again, a posture of weakness and dependence. That's what prayer is. And Paul is saying, here's your application. Now, notice how encompassing this is. This is one of those places in the Scripture 
where Paul, he kind of gives us a, a deeper dimension of prayer. It's not just something we do around the dinner table. Look what he says. He says, with all prayer, pray at all times with all perseverance for all the saints. He's not talking about a casual prayer life right here, is he? And John Stott uh, makes, makes mention of this, that, that we're not just being told to pray more or even just to pray harder. And again, that's my typical response. I see that, you know, command to pray, I mean, I need to pray more. I need to pray harder. Sure, why not? But that's not what Paul's commanding us here. He's commanding us to enter into battle, to recognize our reality in light of the reality this world that we live in, darkened and evil, in light of the victory that has been given to us and the armor that now is supplied to us in Christ, Paul says, here's what you do. You pray. And you pray in such a way that it consumes your life. That's why the word all is given to us four different times here. This is a prayer of desperation. If I really, and here's the truth, if I really believed what I was preaching right now, if I really believe that there is a spiritual battle going on, that Satan is far more powerful than me by myself, but that he is also subordinate to God and God's power, wouldn't I appeal to God for his strength and his wisdom all the time? There's a foe who is stronger than me, but he's not stronger than my Savior. Why wouldn't I come to Jesus Christ in prayer all the time, desperate for his presence and his grace and his wisdom and his strength? Uh, but I don't. I mean, I, I, compared to this standard, what Paul's telling us, how we ought to pray, you know, I pray very little comparatively. Um, I pray very sporadically. I pray pretty casually. Um, not with the desperation and the devotion that I'm being called to here. And I don't know where you fall in that. But so often, I, I made this comparison earlier, I, I treat this Christian life like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best today, and hopefully God will throw me a bone as needed. Hopefully he'll help me out when I stumble. And that's not the posture that we're being commanded of here, to pray all the time in the Spirit and to pray for all the saints. So I ought to be praying desperately for myself, but also for you. And I'll just tell you guys, this is, this, this uh, of all the things that we've just read, this, is, this hits me the hardest, because this is the application. This is where we begin to put the armor on. It's through a life of prayer, and there's nothing more important, nothing more urgent we can do, I think, in this moment than pray, because only one has the power to defeat the schemes of the devil in our lives. And we've got to depend on him 24-7. And so that's what we're going to do here. Just, and, and typically, I will pray over us, and I'll do a little bit of that, but I'm also going to prompt us to pray here as we close. Um, because this needs to be operational for all of us, and I trust that it will be. As we go through this week, I hope that you'll walk back through the armor of God and walk back through your perception of, of do I underestimate the role of Satan in this world, and, and um, how does God need to correct me? I hope that that will marinate this week. But even just in these next few moments, I'm going to prompt us to pray together, where I'm going to just let you in your own heart speak to the Lord. And so take a posture of prayer right where you are. We're going to go for about three or four minutes. You can stay where you are. You can close your eyes. You can leave them open. There's no rule. You can get out of your seat 
and kneel down or stand against the wall. You do whatever you need to do in this moment. Just take a posture of prayer. This is just you and God. At the end of Ephesians 6, the very last verse of this book, Paul says, Grace be with those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. And Father God, I pray that for us right now. Weak as we are, that Lord, you, when you peer into our hearts, um, we don't have a perfect love for you. I don't. Oh, but I pray that it's incorruptible. I pray that for all of us, there's an incorruptible love for you. That is to say, a love that will not diminish over time, a love that will grow stronger with time, a love that is not subject to good circumstances, Lord, but a love that, 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 that pursues you and is devoted to you even when things are sour in our lives, an incorruptible love. And Father, where we struggle to love you like that, um, Father, show us the face of Christ, all of his love given to us when we were our least deserving. And, and Lord, give us a heart to love you the way we should, the way we want to. But right now where we sit, I want to encourage us as, as, you, as you spend time with the Lord in prayer. What Paul has told us in Ephesians 6 is not just about the bad world out there. It's about the reality that functions within our own hearts that we are prone to evil desires. We are prone to uh, sins that are in rebellion against our Heavenly Father. And so right where we sit, let's take just a moment and acknowledge to God just one sin. Take one thing that perhaps you feel you're losing the battle. Maybe a sin that is a particular struggle, a particular temptation that at times maybe even overwhelms you. And would you do what we're called to do, which is simply confess this to the Lord. He already knows, but confess it in your heart to God. And two things we, we need to, to, to ask of God. One, that he would abound in grace. That we would recognize that God would show us that his love for us, his grace for us, is not diminished because of this sin. That we are forgiven in Christ. But I also want you to ask of the Lord in this moment, God, what is the root of this temptation, of this sinful desire in me? God, take me to the root of it, that, it, that I might repent of it and turn to Christ.
And let's pray in these moments that, um, that the Lord would equip us well for the realities of everyday life. That where we have uh, neglected this armor of truth, of faith, of God's word, of the gospel, of peace, where these things are lacking, would you ask the Lord to supply his grace? And lastly, would you confess, assuming that it's true of you, would you confess in prayer your own lack of prayer? I need to confess my own lack of devotion to pray in the way that we see in the Scripture today. My lack of desperation. We can simply own that before the Lord. Father, thank you so much that right right where we sit in this very moment, Lord, we sit in the greatest reality uh, imaginable. That there is victory in the name of Jesus Christ, and the victory has been won on our behalf. The, The works of the devil ultimately have been destroyed through the resurrection of our Savior. And Father, he, is, he will not concede defeat. He is, he, is, um, he is diligent in his own way. But Lord, his, he is on the clock. And we, we pray that you would hasten the day in this Advent season as we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. That Lord, you would hasten the day when you return and make righteousness to dwell in the fullest and truest sense. When you bring your peace and Lord, you call us home with you. That Father, in this in-between time that we would would live with such boldness and such confidence in you that even when we're beset with sin, even when we struggle with the evil and the darkness that surrounds us, Father, that we would stand firm. As you commanded us three times today to stand firm. Because we stand firm not in our own strength, but in the strength which you provide, in the strength of your might, and in the armor of God. We are victorious because our champion has gone before us. And Lord, let us, let that reality now change how we view the world, change how we live, change how we, how, what we see in the mirror, change how we make decisions, that we can walk boldly and confidently, well-equipped for every battle, because we are in Christ. And so, Father, make that uh, truth to dwell richly within us 
And Father, make us to be a people who reflect it to the world that we wouldn't make any sense to people because there's a divine light in us that, we, that wouldn't make any sense, but that it would be um, a light, Lord, that draws people to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.